So that was Inti's very fine dramaturgy <laughs> for the commencement of his talk. Um, hi, I'm Vivian Zahel, for anyone who doesn't know me. I'm currently the curatorial fellow with the Institute of Modern Art. Uh, and on May the 14th, there's an exhibition that I'll open here and at the QT Art Museum. It'll be preceded by a cinema lecture on the 11th of May, just to plug that. But for today, I'm just making a short introduction to the curator uh, Inti Guerrero. Thanks, first of all, uh, needs to go to the University of New South Wales and for Artspace, who facilitated Inti's travel here. And thanks, of course, to Aileen, Johan, um, uh, and the staff of the Institute of Modern Art for orchestrating this event as well. It's truly a pleasure to make this introduction to Inti, who's uh, a deeply valued colleague, whose work I follow honestly very keenly and that I consider to be both challenging and extremely influential. Inti was in fact uh, in Amsterdam at the time that I arrived there. Uh, and his exhibition, Duet for Cannibals, which I caught the end of, was for me uh, an instruction in terms of how to thread through narratives of anti-colonial uh, thematics and queer thematics together in a way that challengingly strung together institutions. It was something that Inti did in collaboration with the Tropen Museum in Amsterdam, which was quite a neglected institution, and he managed to really activate some of the latent, uh, latent perversities of that space, let's say. Inti uh, is a Colombian curator, and he's based in Hong Kong. He's been there, I think, for about three years. Um, at the present, he holds the position of the adjunct curator of Latin American art at the Tate Modern. However, we were speaking about what he could present today, and we felt that it might be interesting to go really in-depth into one project to really unfold uh, the forms that his practice takes, particularly in terms of very considered constructions of essays as exhibitions. Um, the project that he'll talk about is uh, Journal of a Plague Year, which was an exhibition co-curated with Cosmin Kostantinas that examined the SARS epidemic in Hong Kong. We thought that would be particularly appropriate to this audience, not only that it's an audience that is often actually very well educated in uh, Asia-Pacific art, thanks to the long work of the Gallery of Modern Art and, and Queensland Art Gallery with the Asia-Pacific Triennale in that regard, but also because it's an extremely topical exhibition dealing with notions of cultural contamination uh, and fears of, of um, contamination through migration. Very topical today, of course. So, um, Inti, the floor is yours. Thank you. So, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I will tell you more of the film that you were just seeing uh, around the middle of the presentation. So. Uh, you will have a sense of more of what it is. Um, I'm thrilled, first of all, to uh, be in Brisbane. Please tell me if the volume is low or high. And, um, uh, and on this fascinating and highly informative trip to Australia, I wanted to thank uh, Artspace in Sydney, uh, who are making this trip uh, a reality, and to the IMA, or the IMA, I call it the IMA, <laughs> for organizing this talk upon Vivian's kind invitation. So thank you. So yes, as Vivian said, I'm going to talk about one specific uh, project co-curated with Cosmin, uh, Costinas, and um, 
Um, I'll just start, and um, I hope that there's a conversation, okay? So here we go. Yes, I will read a little bit, but I won't read all of it, so I'll stop in certain cases to explain further some images. Um, so the just a little bit of the image that's here, yeah. The, um, the exhibition was called The Journal of the Plague Year after a book by Daniel Defoe that was on the plague, bubonic plague in London uh, in the 17th century. Um, and this is just as a reference, and then I'll just start my script. <laughs> so, the city of Hong Kong has a subjectively internalized history of epidemics and of representations in the colonial era as an infected land that needs to be conquered from nature, disease, and oriental habits to be made healthy, modern, and profitable. These narratives culminated with the identification of the bacillus causing the plague during the 1894 outbreak in Hong Kong. That fateful visit of the plague led to the first urbanization of the informal Chinese districts of the colonial city of Hong Kong. As a hygienic measure, the British, whose agents you can see there in white uniform, uh, the British government demolished entire blocks in the plague's epicenter, aiming to cleanse both spaces and lifestyles. The discovery of bacteriologists Kitsato Shibasaburo and Alexander Gersin, uh, two scientists that were researching the plague in 1994 in Hong Kong, who discovered it in that district, the news that they had discovered what caused the plague made world headlines in 1894. As they identified the culprit that had affected European populations in recurring deadly cycles since a millennium and a half ago, the most pestilent being the Black Death in the mid-14th century that have allegedly killed half of the population of Europe. These are all images of Hong Kong. The source of the disease finally found by Western science, but in Hong Kong, in the Far East, sorry for the sound, <laughs> is a stunning parallel to the origin of the Black Death, which was also believed to have been spread by Asians, by the Mongol armies besieging the city of Kaffa in Crimea. Just to give you a little bit of the images, when I was referring to how the plague produced the first modern um, urban planning in um, Hong Kong was related to that demolishment of the epicenter of the plague, because first the government burned a lot of the belongings that were infested with uh, the disease, and eventually they demolished the whole informal uh, Chinese neighborhood. So, um, going back to what I was saying at the uh, at the very end of of the text, um, the Black Death, which was the Black Death that had killed so many people in Europe for centuries, that pest was also believed to have been spread by Asians by the Mongol armies besieging the city of Kaffa in Crimea. The transmission route of the Black Pest to Europe is said to have been intentional. The Mongols catapulting the bodies of plague victims above the city of walls in what might have been one of the first biological wars in history. If you see this image, it's basically the soldiers that are being catapulted to 
the European city, they are infested with the plague. And that's um, the whole notion of how uh, Europe constructed the idea that the pest came uh, from the east. This image that I showed you as an archive was part of the exhibition. So I won't show so deeply how the exhibition appeared, but it's more like how certain images that you will see were physically in the exhibition, uh, in the grand majority, and just very few inf slides uh, informed or are related to the subject, but a lot of the material that you'll see here was part of the show. So, um, in 1894, Hong Kong, the perceived Asian origin of the plague at the end of the 19th century, ignited its dubious associations with Asians, heightening what was then called the Yellow Pearl Scares in the West at the time. For those who may not be familiar with the term Yellow Pearl, it was the prejudice against Chinese immigration in the Western world in the late 19th century and early 20th century, alongside the wariness toward the growing military Japanese power. Yellow Peril also has an overlapping history with anti-Chinese sentiments found within other Asian nations. Nevertheless, the pre-First World War Western world, infatuated with its own sense of progress and civilization, convinced that war and destruction could not erupt anymore from within its brotherly and interconnected countries, needed a horizon of fear on the outside. The inscrutable rising and spreading Asians were perfect agents of fear. So all this imagery that perhaps some in the room might be familiar with um, was produced with great um, imagery production of stereotype, racist uh, profiling um, as a reaction to the fear and the anxiety of the vast uh, uh, amount of uh, Chinese immigrants, primarily in Australia and in California. Uh, the image that you see here is actually from the bulletin uh, at the end of the 19th century in Sydney. Uh, this was one of the most famous cartoons um, that created this metaphor of the fear of the Chinese taking over all the jobs um, that young uh, Australians could possibly have and not only taking the jobs, but taking control as an economic monopoly of different economies. So the octopus was constantly seen as that metaphor of, um, of that power of having control of certain monopolies. And as you can see, the, ten the tentacles showed that um, the fear over uh, the contamination towards Asian populations was not only a physiological um, um, idea of hygiene, but also a moral conceptions of what was unhygienic. No? So the Chinese were uh, stereotyped as not only being medically uh, unhygienic, but morally in relation to that they were corrupt, untrustworthy, uh, immoral, etc. These are images of um, a slogan that a um, governor from California became very famous for, uh, where he claimed that the Chinese must go. No? 
it was time for them to go and to go back. And all of this rhetoric against the Chinese led to the first um, anti-Chinese act. I'm paraphrasing the exact name. But it's basically the first immigration border control law in the States, which is the basis of uh, the immigration laws uh, in the US. No? So within the exhibition, there were these historical materials, but there was, for example, works like Ming Wong, who you might be very knowledgeable of. Uh, I think he has been twice here um, with different types of practices. And he has developed a work uh, that starts from a compilation of posters, which are here, but they're also uh, the one of Chinatown where Jack Nicholson plays. And he makes a selection to show how all the imagery uh, that is founded in the Yellow Pearl of the 19th century may be found uh, or continued in some way within Western pop culture over ideas of Asianness, of China, and uh, how Chinese characters in Hollywood, uh, male characters primarily, would still be portrayed as this um, untrustworthy, dubious, uh, corrupt, and uh, Chinatown as being this place of gangsters, etc. No, uh, the film, the photo that you see below is a still of one of his videos uh, that he filmed in different parts of Chinatown, where he wear this uh, chop this um, yeah chop suey specs. That I don't know if you see it there, but it says, "Fool your friends with this Oriental disguise." Immigrants were and, and are still frequently represented as pests, as a disease that could infect the essentialist monocultural social body defined by populist nationalist rhetoric in varying contexts. But the 19th century medical diagnosis of Hong Kong was more complex. For the British Empire, the foremost uh, proponent and beneficiary from global free trade in the 19th century Hong Kong functioned as an excellent example of the miasmic theory of contamination, which is a place that was intrinsically infected, pestilent, and dangerous. The smell of free-flowing goods and money was the only fragrance that could cover the smell of death in Hong Kong. When Hong Kong became the epicenter of SARS crisis, a pandemic crisis in 2003, the unprecedented shutdown of a first world city and the atomization of society in quarantine segments led to an unexpected shift in the political awareness of the Hong Kong citizenry. Just after the end of the epidemic, record numbers of people turned out to protest against the new internal security law imposed by Beijing, causing its shelving and more importantly, the emergence of an active political community. After that moment, the image of a depoliticized and solely pragmatic commercial hub could not anymore tell the whole story about Hong Kong. The umbrella movement in the autumn of 2014 was, in many ways, a culmination of the disobedience that started that year. So just to make this a bit more clear, in 2003, the year that the epidemic happened, and the communist uh, government in Beijing wanted to implement um, a security law to Hong Kong, which would um, jeopardize, 
press freedoms uh, and certain liberties. And it was like the first attempt for Beijing to try to control politically and having some control within the police uh, in Hong Kong. You know? Hong Kong is quite autonomous, but in 2003, there, there was this attempt. And because of that, um, people came out in masses to protest against it. But somehow the reading that people have done and the one that Cosmin and I based our reading of this moment is that because it happened in the same year of the epidemics, the vast majority of people also went out there because it was a very existentialist year in the sense that there was nothing to lose. No, uh, they could die uh, the month after, so there was this very... Um, uh, yeah, radical um, existentialist moment for uh, the social body. And what happens in Hong Kong is that every 1st of July, uh, the society goes out on uh, the streets to uh, protest against um, the limited democracy that Hong Kong has. That existed since 1997, since uh, the British gave back Hong Kong. But in 2003, those marches became even more massively. So within the exhibition, there were works that related to these marches. So for example, this is an artist, I don't know if uh, you're familiar with him. His name is Pak Shengchen. He made this piece in 2005 where he would place a piece of cloth on the streets where and the marchers would pass by, and basically like a, a strip of, 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 of cloth glued to the, to the street. And as the marchers passed by, when the march ended, he took out the cloth, he took a flight to Beijing, and went around the Forbidden City and cut uh, pieces of thread of all the steps of the march. So, for example, that was a drawing that was there. Not a drawing, but um, this was a newspaper. He worked, the artist used to work in the newspaper, and this appeared actually in Hong Kong newspaper in 2005. So, okay. Less glorious than these moments of collective grace are the repercussions of the main measures taken to elevate the economic meltdown caused by SARS. The permission of mainland citizens to visit the territory on individual visas. This has caused a seismic shift in the identity of the city and its relationship to mainland China. Medicalized vocabularies and imageries reminiscent of epidemics have been used in regard to the growing number of mainland Chinese in Hong Kong, who are seen as pathogens corrupting an, other, an otherwise healthy social body. So what, has, what happened with SARS was that there was an economic meltdown, and the government needed to create and boost the economy. And the best strategy that they came up with was that people from the mainland could come to Hong Kong for the very first time on individual visas. Before that, you could only go to Hong Kong uh, as a mainland Chinese on group visas. And it was bureaucratically very difficult to get. And since 2003, individuals could have the chance. And so since that year till today, there has been a growing amount of mainland Chinese visitors, which have caused an anxiety towards the uh, original Hong Kong society 
and has created basic xenophobia. There's a lot of constant um, uh, stereotype, racist, well, xenophobic representation towards mainland Chinese. And here, for example, it's an ad um, where mainland Chinese here and in many other advertisements are constantly represented, represented as locusts uh, who suck up the resources uh, of Hong Kong. So I think it's quite clear there, but it says, the translation of the part in yellow says, alarming the Hong Kong readers of the newspaper, are you willing for Hong Kong to spend one million Hong Kong dollars every eight minutes to raise the children born to mainland parents? So there's a lot of, um, well, there's this construction that co there are many mainland Chinese pregnant women that border cross to have the social security of Hong Kong. And one of the other constant references um, is what you see to the right, um, which is the basis of what uh, created the work of Ai Weiwei in the exhibition. And it's a, a whole crisis and stigma that was created around the milk powder formula, the, the, the cans that you see there. In China, if you might remember, four years ago, there was a um, pandemic crisis of contaminated um, powder milk that led to people want to go to Hong Kong or find ways and merchants uh, to bring a powder milk formula, mostly made in New Zealand or Australia, that was sold uh, in Hong Kong so that uh, the growing middle class of China could buy and give to their children that product. And uh, it became, um, within Hong Kong, a paranoia that there would be a scarce of um, milk powder formula because the mainland Chinese would suck it up uh, from all the shops. So Ai Weiwei made this piece. And for this, um, it's literally a map of China made with a baby milk powder. Some of you might have seen it in uh, Melbourne. I think it was shown or part of it. But I wanted to play you a clip from the BBC that documented the, um, the installation. And that will give you more idea of the context. What happened here? milk formula 1815 cans to be exact if you look at some of the brands they've used though they're all international labels these are the most popular ones amongst mainland Chinese tourists when they come to visit Hong Kong go to any pharmacy and there are long queues for them in the lead-up to major holidays especially there have been at times shortages because they bought so much well that has made a lot of local mothers and Hong Kong residents angry Milk powder is a source of tension we have with mainland Chinese. So to see so many cans of baby formula in the shape of China is very provocative.
Mainland Chinese buy cases of milk powder, and sometimes when they see my sister buying two cans, they will also want her share. That's why we get angry. For many visitors, it's a novelty to see so many cans of baby formula. Milk powder is now a restricted item. Anyone leaving Hong Kong with more than two cans is treated as a smuggler. They face fines and even a jail term. But many here believe the mainland Chinese will find ways to bypass the restrictions. Some of these foreign brands are available on the mainland, but Chinese parents just don't trust their own food supply. They'll stop at nothing to get what they think is a safer supply in Hong Kong, even as far away as the UK. But just look at how big mainland China is. Hong Kong is so tiny; it doesn't even register on the map here. And so the question for many parents here is this: Is there enough supply for everyone's babies? Of course, there is <laughs> enough supplies, and um, yeah, this um, it's still like an ongoing um, subject because um, when you enter Hong Kong airport, uh, I suggest you listen to the voice over the speaker that announces two things: one is that they alarm you and ask you that if you have fever, if you feel that you're sick. Please go to the medical um, authorities, no? Because since SARS and since um, bird flu, there's this constant paranoia of uh, contamination. And the other announcement on the airport is: we remind you, it is not allowed to buy more than two milk powder. You know, to leave uh, Hong Kong with two cans of milk powder, no? So it's it's really like a subject. So. Yeah, the show related this with other realities, so it wasn't solely a uh, Hong Kong Chinese uh, reel. I think that most of the exhibitions that I uh, curate myself, and this one with Cosmin, um, we always um, create associations with other contexts. This is a work uh, by Inryu Chen and James T. Hong. When they were living in, a, in California, They came upon a day when some right-wing um, governor or mayor was describing Mexicans as ants because there were so many that they are going to eat up the whole country. No, so that was the film that you saw uh, at the beginning. Uh, that the film begins with a very unfocused image that looks almost like bacteriological imagery. It focuses to a point that you see that it's actually ants, and then it zooms out, and you see that this map that looks like an island, the map of the U.S. is being contaminated by all these ants or Mexicans. Again, an epidemic becomes the backdrop of paranoia and hate. But the fear of the Chinese of their vast numbers and uncivilized habits, which you could tell from the description of the BBC. Is now harbored by fellow Chinese rather than by the self-content Europeans of the last wave of plague a century ago. That's important to say because somehow, uh, although 1997 was the year that the British gave back Hong Kong to China, 
it was 2003, the real handover. Uh, culturally, you could say it was the real moment that Hong Kong encountered China, because eventually, as I've said, uh, it was the moment that Chinese from the main that could enter in vast majorities. Um, the exhibition also included, so that that was a part of the exhibition that talked about this dehumanization of individuals to others, but we wanted to make part of the exhibition that was not only about uh, that discourse of how certain subjects subjugate or dehumanize others through representation, through language, or through loss, but a section of the show was dedicated to practices, performative practices, uh, which were a uh, documentation of a number of performances. And this had in common uh, their attempt to destabilize varying narratives of those dehumanizations by placing on the front line the fragile but individualized, in, in most cases, the male body, at various moments of historical transformation and rupture in different corners of Asia. From the highly insecure Hong Kong of the 1989s, which is what I'll explain later, anticipating its handover to mainland China, to a Chinese performer uh, during the traumatic post Tiananmen years, or from Singapore and the la in the last chapters of the Lee Kuan Yew era and other contexts. This is one of the examples of um, the exhibition travel to many places from uh, Hong Kong, um, Taiwan, and this is an image of Karist in San Francisco. There to the right, you see this work. Uh, it's Ricky Young. He's an artist from Hong Kong who, in the 80s, wanted to make a performance that, as he wrote about it and still describes it, to react to the um, affirmation that Margaret Thatcher signed with the Chinese to return, eventually, Hong Kong uh, to uh, the Chinese uh, uh, government. And as a way of protest, this artist, he made a cage out of bamboo uh, and stayed for 48 hours as a beast uh, that had no political um, participation in that decision. You know, because um, although the agreement was made in the 19th century by the 80s, where there was already like an important society in Hong Kong, there was never the idea that there could be a um, plebiscito, how do you call that? Um, plebiscito, yeah. So this feeling of entrapment of encaged is what, and basically a society that is um, treated as a dog that can be passed from um, owner to another was somehow the work uh, of this artist. But other contexts uh, could also have other forms of this uh, forms of um, creating a reverse of uh, dehumanizing um, processes. So this is a collective that I strongly uh, recommend that you research. Uh, I'm showing you only one of many wonderful works. They had an amazing retrospective at LACMA. There's a great source book that LACMA did. And um, it's the like trans, queer, uh, cabaret, uh, street action collective called ASCO from uh, the Chicano community. The Chicanos are those who are the second generation of Mexicans who came, most 
great part of them, yes, illegally uh, to the U.S., but they, these are the first children who were born. And uh, during the Vietnam War, um, it was shown that there were many Chicano soldiers who were the ones that were sent uh, on the front line. And um, as an act of protest, the Chicano community uh, in L.A. made a protest in the site where this performance is taking place. So it's more about like this, creating this visibility by, create, by being uh, absurd and somehow um, degenerative, if to uh, misuse or use the word. The, um, it's important to note the name, what it signifies in Spanish, uh, asco, also has a very physiological description because it refers like to filth or that you're disgusted, no? asco, como. In Spanish, when you say, like, me da asco, is, is, you would say, you disgust me. Yeah? So uh, as queerness, they appropriated something that was negative and just put it out there in a like, hyper-reality. You know? So that was a section of the show. There were many. I'm not going to show you all the works that had to do with performance, but I guess you get an idea of, of this part. Now, the last section, and almost coming towards the end, um, the show um, had a third account that also took place in that year of the plague, the SARS plague in 2003. This refers to the ambivalence in the identity of Hong Kongers um, with us, um, and who are still, with, to a certain point, uh, identified with the figure of a pop singer called Leslie Chung. Leslie Chung is this iconic actor and singer who committed suicide at the height of the SARS crisis by jumping off the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in central Hong Kong, that's downtown Hong Kong. His shocking death at the darkest hour of the darkest times in recent memory played its part in the mobilization of Hong Kongers who turned out in huge numbers for <coughs> Leslie's funeral. Uh, you might, some people in the room might remember uh, this figure in the film uh, industry. Um, he was one of the main actors of Wang Kar Wai, um, who played in Happy Together, the couple in Buenos Aires uh, to the right, uh, but also who cross-dressed uh, to Farewell My Concubine in the Chinese film, which I'll talk about a bit later. So this figure, he committed suicide during SARS in, again, in the most critical moment of the epidemic. He committed suicide out of um, his own um, personal battle with depression. And masses of people uh, turned out to his funeral, ignoring the health warnings that were in effect at the time. People were, not, well, were advised not to be in big groups. Leslie's life and career have contributed to forging a strong sense of identity for Hong Kong culture, in spite of his queer and often contrarian persona. One such highly symbolic moment in Leslie's performance is in Farewell, My Concubine, arguably the most successful Chinese film of all times. This grand narrative of 20th century China, spoken in Mandarin, saw the Hong Kong's pop star, who normally was seen as speaking in Cantonese, the symbol of a, and who is also the symbol of a cosmopolitan lifestyle, 
which was back then in 1993 still foreign to mainland Chinese, saw himself on the screen cross-dressing as a traditional Chinese opera performer and symbolically returning to the cultural canon of the motherland, to China. It was perhaps an unintended but no less effective cultural handover of Hong Kong to China a banda lettre. Nevertheless, Leslie remained in the eyes of generations of Hong Kongers, an essential symbol of the city, of a certain Hong Kong with its own Cantonese, post-colonial, and pop vernacular idiosyncrasies that perhaps died together with Leslie in 2003. So within the exhibition, we had an open call for fans of Leslie, in the case of Hong Kong, People uh, came to Parasite, where the exhibition took place, and brought their own memorabilia and belongings. And together, we made the installation of these objects. And we did the same in Taiwan and in Korea. He was a pan-Asian uh, icon. If you Google his name, CNN uh, has listed him after Elvis and the Beatles as the most iconic icon in music. And um, his, uh, um, yeah. His fame went with the diasporas to San Francisco, so when we did the show in San Francisco, there were also other materials that arrived. And we commissioned some works that had to do with um, this ghost uh, that died, um, and that is still with uh, the identity of Hong Kongers, that people identify, again, that his death in 2003 means the death of how Hong Kong was before the mainland Chinese started to come in more masses and how that has created a kind of like a strange identification with that previous time. But there were also works that were associated, not because they were directly connected, but because visually we thought that uh, they could be um, uh, creating visual associations. This is a performance by Ma Liu Ming an artist from the 90s who he himself was also a very genderly ambiguous uh, performer. And anyway, when you, I guess when you sense the exhibition, there are things that visually and culturally relate. So the conclusion. <laughs> so it seems as if, uh, oops, it seems as if a periodization of modernity could be structured through humanity's experience with pandemic diseases and the paranoia and acts of exclusion that follow. By the time that we published the book that accompanied the exhibition, an Ebola crisis was ex expanded with vicious virulence in West Africa. The current association of the tropical disease with Africans is fostered worldwide by its portrayal in the media. Aside from journalism, recent film history has also constructed our ideas of outbreaks and contagion. But nowadays, with the immediateness of social media, it is the possibility of going viral that shapes the collective beliefs and prejudices. In May 2014, far-right French politician Jean-Marie Le Pen was quoted in social media as saying that the deadly Ebola virus could solve France's immigration problems in three months. In other words, one virus could kill another. It seems common to hear that if SARS had not happened, the Mandarin-speaking locusts from the mainland 
would not have invaded the already overcrowded city of Hong Kong. In this case, one virus created another. But as a journalist in Hong Kong and writer called Fionula McHugh has stated elsewhere, the more mainlanders that enter liberal Hong Kong, the more they come into contact with democratic discourse. Perhaps in the near future, it will be the Hong Kong SAR, which stands for, I forgot what it stands for, <laughs> um, Special Administration Region. <laughs> yes, the Hong Kong SAR, um, which will, it, it would be the Hong Kong SAR, which will become the new dangerous virus of the 21st century making democracy and liberal thinking pandemic within China. That's it. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, perfect. Maybe I... Uh, 